I'd like to uh, welcome everybody. Uh, can you all hear me? Yeah? Um, I'd like to welcome everybody um, to this panel discussion um, on gender and the Hindu right in India. Um, on behalf of the organizers of this event, um, I'd like to start by saying how privileged we feel to be hosting this panel um, of uh, eminent speakers who've been in the forefront of both campaigning as well as research uh, on the theme of uh, gender and the Hindu right in India. Um, before I introduce um, these speakers to you, I want to just briefly explain um, the reasons why we're holding this event at this time. Um, it's, of course, timely because uh, we are in the run-up now to International Women's Week, um, and perhaps more importantly, it's particularly timely because um, the last several days have been the anniversary of the genocidal uh, attacks on the uh, Muslim minority community in Gujarat, which took place in 2002. And as we know, uh, the survivors of those attacks are still waiting for justice. Um, this uh, event has been uh, organized by the Gender Institute um, I uh, teach at the Gender Institute. My name is Kalpana Wilson, and I'm going to be chairing the event. Um, and it's been organized in collaboration with two activist organizations. Uh, the first is the Freedom Without Fear platform, um, which was set up last year in solidarity with the uh, anti-rape movement in India. And it's a coalition of uh, groups and individuals which seeks to provide an arena for uh, black, South Asian, and minority ethnic women to lead discussions and campaigns on violence against women in Britain. And there's more information about that organization which is circulating here. Um, and the other organization is the South Asia Solidarity Group, um, which has been supporting and publicizing um, struggles against communalism and fascism in South Asia uh, for the last two decades. Um, and this last two decades is the period when we have seen uh, the concerted rise of the Hindu right in India, um, which has now brought us to this uh, historical moment when many people are observing uh, a threat of fascism uh, at the national level with uh, Narendra Modi's uh, prime ministerial bid. Um, now, of course, Narendra Modi, as you know, is the candidate of the BJP, um, but we have to remember that Modi represents not just a political party, um, but a family of organizations, the Sangh Parivar, um, a family of Hindu supremacist parties, mass organizations, paramilitary groups, and stormtroopers. And at its core uh, is the RSS, which is an authoritarian, militarist, cadre-based organization, which was formed in the mid-1920s. Um, it was formed um, uh, at a time when we're seeing the rise of fascist parties in Italy, later in Germany, and it directly took inspiration from the rise of these parties. Uh, notoriously, the RSS leader, uh, M.S. Golwalkar, uh, talked about uh, Hitler's treatment of the Jews as a model of race pride, which India should emulate. Now, of course, uh, 
Narendra Modi is not in any way new to the political scene. He has been the chief minister of Gujarat since 2001. And he has referred, as is well known, to Gujarat as the laboratory of a Hindu state. Now, what does this mean? I think it becomes very clear to us when we remember what happened in 2002, when we remember the mass rapes and the unimaginable forms of sexual violence which took place then and which have been courageously testified to by the survivors and which have been documented by a whole series of human rights organizations. And um, I just uh, wanted to briefly uh, remind us of uh, how Tanika Sarkar, in an an article which um, is very well known, described this violence when she said the pattern of cruelty suggests three things. One, the woman's body was a site of almost inexhaustible violence with infinitely plural and innovative forms of torture. Second, their sexual and reproductive organs were attacked with special savagery. And third, their children, born and unborn, shared the attacks and were killed before their eyes. And when we talk about Gujarat being a laboratory, what this really means is that the same, that is the, the Gujarat model which has been replicated across India and in different locations since then. It's been replicated in Orisha in 2007 to 8, uh, where the Christian communities were targeted. And most recently, in the context of the BJP's current national election campaign, uh, we've seen it happen in Muzaffarnagar in UP. And in each of these cases, it wasn't a case of spontaneous communal conflict, but planned, systematic, and organized violence. Um, And we have to realize that targeting of minority women for this kind of appalling violence is not some kind of side effect. It's absolutely central to the project of the Hindu right and the way that it operates. Um, This idea goes back to the earliest ideologies of the Hindu right, the appeal to Hindu men to rape Muslim women, to reassert their masculinity, and it's remained very much part of the whole patriarchal nationalist narrative of Hindutva. Um, And as in other um, far-right organizations and movements, uh, Hindutva mobilizes women, women who are identified as Hindu, for this violence. At the same time, it's underpinned by an intensely patriarchal conception of women's role as primarily wives and mothers and as needing to be controlled. And in this context, we're seeing today the intensification of surveillance and control over women, the rise of so-called moral policing, targeting students and other young people. And we're seeing the invocation of this idea of the protection of Hindu women as a justification for yet more violence against religious minorities and Dalits. So this ideology is also reflected in the activities of the Hindu right here in Britain. Um, As in India, they have been promoting this myth of uh, so-called love jihad. For example, in 2007, we had the Hindu Forum of Britain making completely unfounded allegations about young Hindu women students uh, in British universities being targeted for forcible conversions by Muslim extremists. And this fits in very well in this country with the agenda of the British state and its Islamophobia. For example, at that time, you had the police commissioner uh, of the Metropolitan Police, Ian Blair, immediately saying that he would commit his force to action to tackle this. 
despite the evidence of any, the, despite the absence of any evidence. Um, and his remarks were then widely reported in the British media. Yet a few months later, the police were unable to cite a single case of this actually happening. Also in Britain, we have lobbies like Saffron Chase and organizations like uh, Barry Gardner MPs, Labour Friends of India, and the Conservative Friends of India, promoting the myth about Modi's Gujarat as a model for economic development. Uh, the reality, when we look at Gujarat today, um, you have 44.6% of children under five malnourished, figures which are comparable only to the poorest states in India. Um, you have nutritional poverty, which is uh, low, higher than all India levels. Um, and really what you have is, is ordinary people in Gujarat paying a price for Modi's policies in which whole swathes of land and coastline have been converted into special economic zones or special investment regions and handed over to corporates. Um, and of course these same policies which give a free hand to corporate exploitation are attracting the support of transnational corporations, Indian and foreign, and they've also led the British government here to tentatively rehabilitate Modi. Um, and when the Minister of State for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, Hugo Swire, met Modi in Ahmedabad, he made it very clear that this was all about the UK's national interests, meaning the interests of British big business. Um, so before I conclude, I just want to um, ask what this uh, so-called Gujarat development model has meant for women. Because Modi, too, is adopting the language now of women's empowerment. Well, the 2011 census showed that the sex ratio in Gujarat was only 918 women per 1,000 men, below the already scandalous national average of 940. It's one of only three Indian states with a downward trend in the sex ratio. It's also well below the national average in the school enrollment of girls. It has very high rates of domestic violence and very low conviction rates. And perhaps all this is epitomized by the fact that in 2007, Narendra Modi actually appointed uh, Maya Kodnani as Minister for uh, Women and Child Development. And as many of you know, she has since been convicted for leading the mobs and handing out weapons during the single largest instance of mass murder during 2002 the Naroda Patia attack, in which more than 100 people, uh, the majority women and children, were murdered. So it's very important, clearly, to have this and, and many of the other events which have been taking place in London during recent weeks and months uh, in the context of the British government's current moves to um, bring Modi back into the fold, because events like this send a message that this is not being done in our name. It's also important because of the very disturbing attempts we're seeing now to silence opponents, uh, reflected in the kind of self-censorship we're seeing in the media in India where um, high-profile journalists who have been outspokenly critical of Modi are being removed, are being sacked, and so on. Um, this has been possible because in the periods and the states where the Hindu right has been in power, they've systematically infiltrated state structures at all levels. And within this, the targeting of women who have stood up to the Hindutva agenda has been especially acute, and they have faced a whole range of misogynistic threats and abuse. 
But despite this, resistance continues. Um, and we have to remember that there are those who are continuing now to courageously bear witness to the atrocities which have occurred, who are continuing to fight to bring those responsible to justice. And we're particularly honored uh, to have with us today Nishreen Jafri Hussain, um, who has been campaigning for justice for the victims and survivors of the horrific violence against minority communities which took place in Gujarat in 2002, many of whom are people who she has known since her childhood. Um, as many of you already know, uh, Nishrin's father, uh, the MP Hassan Jaffrey, was brutally murdered during the violence, and her family is continuing to fight to bring Narendra Modi to justice. Um, we're also delighted to have with us Dr. Angana P. Chatterjee, who is a cultural anthropologist uh, at the University of Berkeley um, and a leading human rights specialist. Um, in 2005, she convened a people's tribunal in Orisha, calling attention to the impending violence against minorities and the religionized oppression. Uh, in 2009, her collaborative work through a people's tribunal she convened in Jammu and Kashmir called attention to the issue of unknown graves and the need for accountability um, to the families of the disappeared and subsequently received corroboration from the State Human Rights Commission of Jammu and Kashmir. And her publications include Violent Gods, Hindu Nationalism in India's Present, Narratives from Orissa, um, a coited volume, Contesting Nation, Gendered Violence in South Asia, um, and the reports Buried Evidence, Unknown, Unmarked, and Mass Graves in Kashmir, Communalism in Orissa, and Without Land or Livelihood. And finally, last but uh, very much not least, we have Meena Kandisami, um, who is a writer, activist, and political columnist. She's published two collections of poetry, um, Touch and Ms. Militancy, and her first novel, The Gypsy Goddess, revisits the 1968 Kilvan Mani massacre, where feudal landlords in Tanjore killed 44 Dalit peasants, striking for higher wages. And in fact, she will be um, here for uh, the launch of her latest book uh, next month, and uh, there's information available about it uh, here. Um, Mina's work is uh, centered on caste annihilation, the Tamil national question, and feminism in contemporary India. Um, so I'd like to um, call on uh, Nishreen first to, to come and speak to us. It's an honor to be speaking here today along with um, Meena Kandaswamy and Angana Chatterjee. I have known her for a long, long time as she has been working in um, the cause for women. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart 
I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, um, especially Kalpana, Amritji, Sarabjit Singh, and the organizers of this event. For inviting me to speak on behalf of the victims of Gujarat. When Kalpana first contacted me, I've, I kind of felt that somebody in UK has recognized and want to hear what has happened to the victims of Gujarat, and especially the, the young girls, the women, the children who were brutally murdered. So I decided that I, am, I wanted to come. I mean, I, I live in the USA. It's very far off. Fortunately, we were going to India, and we made this stop here. So I want to bring out a couple things of who I am, where I'm coming from, who were the people who were butchered, who were the girls who were raped. Um, they were like me. I was raised in the same place where hundreds of girls were raped, brutally murdered. They were not, they didn't die of suffocation in a house it was fought. They were slashed into pieces. Girls were raped, mutilated. So I'm a housewife. I have two kids. In 2002, when this episode happened, my dad was murdered. So of course, I'm actually part of this. I am hurt. But I wasn't going to speak. I wasn't a speaker. I wasn't going to go into conferences and schools and events like this one. To speak. Three months, four months passed by after February 2002, and I was told that I can come and visit my mother. It wasn't safe during the first few months to go and visit Gujarat. My house was totally burned. My father was killed. The complex was completely destroyed. So in 2002, the, with nine NRIs, we went to India. And when we went to India, we decided that complete Ahmedabad was completely destroyed. Muslim community was destroyed. So in, in September 2002, the, with the nine NRIs, we decided to go into villages and see what was the case going there. Everybody's focus was in Ahmedabad. Ahmedabad is a very large city. When I met the girls there, when I met the young girls who had survived this massacre, the ones who were dead were gone. They had taken the torture, the humiliation, but they were killed. They were somewhere in the fields, lying in the wells. But then I met these girls. They were 20-year-old, 15-year-olds, 30-year-old girls. When I went to the villages, they knew who I was. They kept saying, Jafri sahab ki beti hai, Jafri sahab's daughter is here. They all cuddled around me. They wanted to take me into these narrow lanes and small houses and sheds. These are the places where TV, NGOs, none of the people were allowed there. After they have been raped, after they were raped, they were tortured, these girls saw 
their parents being killed, their children being killed. Now they're being protected by their own parents. I went to meet with them. They couldn't say a word. They couldn't say a sentence. But I knew that they were raped. They'd gone through this thing. They'd put their head on my shoulder. They couldn't say anything. Lanes after lanes, village after village. And then I decided, when I came back, that I am going to speak. I am not going to speak because my father was butchered. My father was killed. He was 73 years old. But I am going to speak because somebody has to tell you what happened to these young girls. When you walked, when I was standing there and you all, young girls walked down the steps. My heart was already filling up. Because in my complex, all the girls were 15, 16. Every time I went from USA to India, they would say, Nargis Apa, my home name is Nargis. Nargis Apa, when we pass 12th, we will come to US. We will do this. We will study And when I look at the album, after February 28th, every single page, I'm missing a girl. I'm missing a child. I'm missing a family. I'm missing a husband. I'm missing a mother. 19 bungalows, 500 Muslims in this community. Everyone took shelter on that awful day in our complex. 169 people in my house. Daytime. This was not in the midnight. This was not some spontaneous thing that happened. A mob came, killed five people and left. Very systematic, very brutal killing in broad daylight. That started off at 10 a.m. in the morning with rape, loot, murder, ended at 7 p.m. after the last person left to burning every single home and looting every single home. So I want to talk to you about, this is the reason I came out and I said I will speak. Sometimes I write a speech, but since the time Kalpana had invited, I wanted to make sure I tell you everything these girls have gone through. So what you're seeing is not just me standing here. It's all of them standing behind me, trying to tell you that you got to speak and work for them. They were like me, just like you. What did they do different? That they were raped so brutally, violated. If you, look in, if you listen to the documentaries that are being made, documentary that she has made, Final Solution, freely in Ahmedabad, people are saying how finally the trucks came in and took the bodies out of villages from the wells and took them to, for cremation. Bodies after bodies. This picture here, you see some pictures here. You see some photos. But all the ones that are empty are those girls. I only have few with faces that you will see. Rest of them, you don't have pictures. You go to places, you will talk. My daughter died. Some, some mothers will even tell you, It's good that she died because she was raped. I saw all that stuff. I couldn't help her. She was screaming in the field, but I couldn't help her. It's better she dead. She's dead because what kind of life she would have had. And yes, there is no life for these girls. There is no rehabilitation in, in India. 
They are basically suffering alone. So this was one of the reasons I wanted to come out and tell you and show you these film, these pictures that I have collected. These are all my own pictures when I went to villages. So I also wanted to talk to you about 1969. This massacre happened in 1969 also, when I was only a four-year-old kid. Our house was burned. My mother tells me about that awful day when things were like getting heated up, and they didn't want to leave their home. They were just a newlywed couple. There were two kids and many others in the community, right there in the same place where 2002 happened. My mother kept saying, "Ki, we kahan jayenge? Yahan se bhagkar kahan jayenge?" But the mobs kept coming closer and closer, and finally they had to pick us up and run. All night they ran, and then finally they found something where they could hide. And then we all ended up for an entire year in a refugee camp. So half the people who are living in Millbrook society have already gone through this in 1969. But as we grew up, my father decided right there in, in 1969 in the camps that he wanted to come back to the same place. Why not? We're living in a democracy. India is a democratic country. My father was very strong-headed. He was young. And he said, we are going to go back right there, and we're going to rebuild our burnt home, and we're going to live right there. I think my mother had protested that before. If she had known what was going to come in 2002, she would have never allowed that. But we moved back in that community. We lived there for 30 years, 35 years. He, since he came back, his motto was that this should never happen again. A lot of people didn't come back with him. Some friends came back, especially in Ahmedabad. A ghettoization started, which is now called the mini-Pakistan, Juhapura, you can name it. All the Muslims started crowding in there. My dad stayed there. He started working with the other people, other community. He wanted to pass on that we are the same. We need to be friends. We need to, the community has to come together. For years and years, he tried that. Then comes... February 2002. I'm going to show you some pictures of my dad so you can get an idea that how they differentiated between what we were doing, how we were living there. What made them think that the girls, they were raping, they were looting, they were brutally killing are different? Why was the community so silent? Where were our neighbors? Why didn't they come to help? I'm going to show you some pictures of my dad. This is a very old picture of my mom and dad when they first came to Ahmedabad. My dad finished his law in Ahmedabad. He was politically active. He was a union leader. He was the leader of the coolies. He was a very well speaker. He, he went out spreading the message that we are all the same. We need to get out of this mindset that we are Muslims and you are Hindus and you are another community. It's, this is our home. This is where first was a very small house in 1969. After it got burned, he rebuilt it. That's my mom and my dad. Then February 26th happened. 
In Godhra, that awful day, the train burned. We heard about the news in Times of India. And I thought, I'll call him and just kind of warn him that, you know, just still didn't think about that. I said, I'll call him on the weekend. It was the weekday. This was our home on February 28th by 7 p.m. This was 29th of February when I woke up in the morning. My brother called me and said, go into Times of India. And I said, why? I'm getting kids ready to school. Why do I have to check Times of India in the morning? It's 8 o'clock. And the news was that Jafri and his wife have been murdered, burnt alive in their home. I didn't know how to react. I didn't know it, could, it, it wasn't possible. I have been going to India every year. I meet everybody. I, what is different about me and what is different about my family that they were targeted? I couldn't understand that. The whole idea of complete, the complex was completely burned. The women, they kept telling me all these things. I couldn't, for the fa- first five days, I couldn't understand. We were calling, we were trying to search. I thought, no, there is no way my father could be killed. By the end of the day, by the, by, by the second day, we found out that my mom was actually saved from the house. So now let me tell you a little bit in detail about what happened and why I feel that that people should know this is not just... This happened on 26th February with the train and 28th... This was... I think I have heard many times that this was the reaction for the 26th of February that happened in, in Godra. It's a very awful thing that happened in Godra. We should have brought those people who did that to justice. We, we should have talked about what happened and how we are going to find justice for those people who were killed in Godra. They were human beings. But on February 28th, at 10 a.m., they started throwing stones on the complex. Our complex is 19 bungalows. It's 10 foot of wall. About 400 people are living outside the complex. They have their shops. They are Muslims among this majority Hindu community. By 10 a.m., my father was a little worried that the mob is building up outside there. They're throwing, throwing stones. The kids were throwing stones from inside. They were throwing stones from outside. My father started talk, calling the police. You know, he went to call all the friends in higher places, IPS officers, you know, political parties that he knew, the political friends that he knew. By noon, he had told everybody in the house, because people were gathering, they were running around, chaos chaos was piling up in in the complex, that we should find places to hide. If 10,000 people are outside with swords, seven or eight trucks were loaded with people with swords, gas tanks are exploding outside, where are you going to find place? Ahmedabad is a city. My house is in a place where two miles from my house is a civil hospital, the biggest Asia hospital two miles away. The military is settled just two miles on the other side of my house, on, on the place my father lives. The police, the IPS, officers, nobody came. By two o'clock, they had burned, they had looted. All the girls were being pulled out of each house. Everybody was hearing the screams. My mother still wakes up. By 3 o'clock, my father had decided that nothing is going to happen. He took all the cash from the house. He took all the jewelry from the house. Wherever he could, screaming, people were packed in there. He went outside, and he told the mobs that were standing outside throwing 
fireballs in the house that please take all the money here whatever i have everybody else has put up everything they could but spare the lives the girls were being pulled out he couldn't see that he was i i loot that time and i think about this why he did that can i have some water please they were calling his name so he thought by 3 o'clock that he will go outside and he will beg them to stake his life and spare whatever is left in the house about 60 169 people that had women children pregnant women my friends girls who were attending colleges girls who were doing high school so by 3 o'clock he went outside and he said i gave up please take me and spare the people inside the house after that we didn't want to hear anything from anybody because the house was burned everybody in the house was some of them suffocated the house because of the fire my mother was upstairs few other seven people upstairs survived we came to know about this we went to the villages we met all the people in 2007 the helka did a underground undercover video recording of people who had murdered him i tried not to ask anybody how he was killed i always thought that he was he suffocated in the house we told my mother he he suffocated in the house then we read how he was pulled out he was brutally for 45 minutes he was cut into pieces then his head was put on this on the trishul and he was paraded in the complex even today i think about that and i feel like i pinch myself and this this could not happen to me what is different about me why did they do this to us we've been living there we were this is a free country why why i don't know the answer to why just imagine if i'm asking that answer today what are those girls thinking about there who have been who were raped like i want to show you some pictures here of the girls that i have met these are some of the pictures of my house this is my mom this is firoz this boy here is firoz that's his sister He actually saw her being raped in front of him while they were holding him tight. After they killed his parents, they were raping his sister. But he actually was behind the mob, and he he ran. He saved himself because he just put. I think he put something something on his head, a headband, and he ran because he thought if he were to try to save his sister, he wouldn't be able to get out of there. He had a younger brother. He ran out of there. This is, I believe, I have a picture of his sister here. This is another girl. She lived opposite our house. She had the baby. She was in my house that day when the fire when when the mobs came in. She lost her life. This is Kasim Chacha, his wife. I took this picture in 2009 when I was visiting them because they were they were never they never had a photograph. Half the people that I told you about the girls that are in our villages, they never had a photograph that I could share you, but I have this picture here of Kasim Chachi we call her. and this is the picture that i took in 2009 of his family there are only four survivors of this family rest of them all were in my house 
all these kids this late this girl here in the purple this girl in, in the purple was actually the one with the baby here this is feroz in his home he lost his mother father and his sister that's me here and that's husna she lost her mother her brother they lived like a couple blocks from our house this is feroza she left her mother her uncle lost her mother and her uncle it's another neighbor this is saira bano her son was doing law he was in our house he was outside trying to help everybody and he he was actually burned to death these are the camps this is najmi aunty her husband was in our house he was this is azhar this is rupa modi's son he was actually in the school that i studied in she's still to date this is rupa modi she's still fighting she's still looking for him she still thinks that he'll come back one day this is in the village of kalol his entire family was traveling in a in a, in a, in a um, they ran in a jeep and the mob caught them in the jeep i met this person in the in kalol village i couldn't i couldn't face her i didn't know what to do when i met her this is bilkis she's the girl who was actually raped by seven men she's the only one who was persuaded to file an fir and she won the case she was pregnant at the time when this rape happened my brother and my mother who are fighting for justice you can see tista and rupa modi behind my mother tista is the activist who is actually fighting for this case this is a sparrow ne- nest in my house my father had a big library and all these books around the house all these sparrows used to make little homes and little ghosla bolte hain jo nest in there all this um the nest used to have this kachra in india they call it na my mother used to clean that all the time when we went in 2011 the entire house is burned but you can see the sparrows are still making their nest I don't know if I've been able to tell you exactly what I came to tell here. I, I I'm forgetting everything now. My mother is fighting for the justice. It's been 12 years. But I don't think there is anybody who can give justice to these young females who were butchered. In Ahmedabad all around if you go, people will take you if you go as an NGO, if you go as a reporter, they will take you to the places where the kids were actually electrocuted. they were killed by they were put in the ponds and they were electrocuted they will take you to the girl's house where they had actually killed her raped her right on the road they will take you to the girl's house where they had actually slashed her tummy she's pregnant she that cut her tummy they had taken the baby out and they then cut the baby out these are things that they will tell you they'll take you to the places i don't think justice is going to be done for them they are gone 
So we decided that we'll talk, we'll go and show whatever we can in schools, in, in, in universities, in colleges. I've also, worked, I've also done some, a little bit in the documentary here that Sheena is going to show, and many other places, only trying to relay the message that why when this political power struggle comes up, why are they always attacking the girls? What have they done? What are they trying to prove? What are they trying to do? I mean, we are all Indians. We are all living in a democratic country. Why don't, why don't you feel that we are the same? I still don't understand that. And I've been reading about all the other massacres, you know, Muzaffarnagar that has happened after this, you know. In 1984, what is going on? Why aren't we protecting our minorities? People tell me that it's been 12, 12 years have gone by. You know, you should give up now. There is going to be no justice. But I still have hope. I still have hope that if I keep telling people, the, act, the, the, the true people who have gone, who have left this world, who have suffered, you know, if somebody will listen, something will happen. I don't want to give up. Nor is my mom going to give up. And there are many people, many parents, who are looking for justice. I want to thank you for being here and taking time to listen. And I hope you will read more about this, understand more detail about this whole episode, how it was planned. Listen to the documentaries, listen to the message that they are spreading for hate. There has to be a way to stop this. There has to be a way to make sure that Everybody is protected. All girls are protected, wherever they are, whatever religion they have. I shouldn't have to go around with my forehead saying I'm a Muslim. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Nishreen. I think that really... Um, you know, brought home the reality to us in a way which nobody else um, could have done. Um, I'd like to now um, ask Angana to um, come to the podium. My grateful thanks. Can you hear me? Yes. My grateful thanks to Kalpana. Uh, thank you for your work and your solidarity. And Amrit Wilson for your inspirational work through time uh, and for teaching many of us uh, things that we needed to know. For the, to the Gender Institute for hosting the event and to Nishreen for being my friend and uh, to Mina. Thank you all. Um, India, December 2012. The gruesome gang rape of a 23-year-old woman in Delhi led to the victim's death. The gang rape of an 18-year-old Dalit woman in Punjab, followed by police refusal to act on her complaint, led to the victim committing suicide. These two events brought to the forefront the extreme nature of gendered and sexualized violence against women in India today how intensely women live with the insecurity 
was rendered palpable following the overwhelming response of women across the nation. The devaluation of female life and the glorification of violence against women is structurally condoned and socially permissible and has led to tragic forms of gendered and sexualized violence in the public, family, and political sphere, to dowry debts, to acid throwing, to torture through gang and collective rape, to mutilation, and to honor killings. A woman in India is raped every 20 minutes. 95,000 rape cases are pending within the court system. Three of four perpetrators of crime go free. Gendered violence and conflict is hardly the preserve of India. Regionally and globally, ethnic violence, wars, state-sanctioned terror have affected women in highly specific ways. The role of gendered and sexualized violence in South Asia reveals with horrifying specificity the ways in which women are discursively framed and socially targeted. How do everyday forms of violence against women facilitate large-scale events of gendered violence? The Hindu rights' recurrent use of forms of violence against women across India, for example, have targeted women in riots, pogroms, and armed conflict. Muslim, Sikh, Christian, Dalit, Moonvasi, Adivasi women have been its targets. Sexualized violence has been deployed on the women of the other as vindication and marks subaltern women's bodies in wars of direct and indirect conquest. A gendered analysis of violence shows most of all that what women share is the way in which they experience this violence. The war within, Calcutta, 1946, Kota, 1953, Raurkela, 1964, Ahmedabad, 1969, Bivandi, 1970, Aligarh, 1978, Jamshedpur, 1979, Muradabad, 1980, Meerut, 1982, Hyderabad, 1983, Assam, 1983, Punjab and Delhi, 1984, Bhagalpur, 1989, Bhadrak, 1991, Ayodhya, 1992, Bombay, 1992, Gujarat, 2002, Marad, 2003, Mao, 2005, Orissa, 2007, Jammu, 2008, Orissa, 2008, Muzaffarpur, 2013. Orissa. Violence. In 2002, I visited Gujarat. The words of Rasik, a Dalit boy, age eight, in a decimated colony in Ahmedabad, reverberates even today. I'm not afraid of death, he said to me. I'm frightened by life. Look what happens in life. As Muslim and Dalit women stared at each other in silence across a boundary wall that separated their homes and that separated Muslim from Dalit. In June 2002, Hindutva activists named Orissa the second to Gujarat Hindu Rajya in the nation. Hasina Begum, a Muslim woman in Orissa, tells me, every day little things happen. The clothes I put on the clothesline we share are thrown on the ground. The women tell me that we are achuth, untouchable. Men and women react differently to us. 
My four-year-old daughter goes to play with the neighbors and they push her head out the door to their house and whisper about me every time I see them. A Muslim woman from Khodra district tells me, We came from Chotanagpur, a displaced mining town. Sorry, displaced from a mining town. Our village is surrounded by the RSS. We live like moles. I teach my children to be unseen. If we are quiet, perhaps people will leave us alone. The men, it is not easy for them. Last month there was violence in our village. Bajrang Dal members called us names. They threatened we would never work again, that we would have to leave. They said they were watching, about, watching us. My husband came back shaken. He brought fear with him into the house. He forced me to have intercourse. It was not about intimacy. It was about power, about feeling helpless and wanting control. So here it is in our kitchen as we wait for it to strike. It already has. 36 million people lived in Orissa in 2001, 42 million in 2011. Christians were only 2.4% of the population, most of Dalit descent or Adivasi descent having converted to escape caste oppression. In Orissa, the Sangh Parivar's family of Hindu right organizations has established an array of institutions since the mid-1990s, including trade and student unions, militant and women's groups, through a massive base of a few million. Qualified by ideology and infrastructure, this formidable mobilization is the largest volunteer establishment in the state. These groups are close in ideological accompaniment and corroborate on tactical matters to provide extra constitutional authority to Hindu majoritarian dominance. Each use aggression as an instrument in seeding outcomes toward minoritization. As of 2009, for example, the RSS had 6,000 shakas or centers with 175,000 kada. The VHP had 150,000 primary workers. The Bajrang Dal had 60,000, with leaders across 200 akharas in the state. Complex factors of class and other disenfranchisements compel this kada into coalescing. Sectarian education campaigns undertaken by the RSS-affiliated organizations teach dogma curricula to caste Hindus and Adivasis and Dalits in mobilizing against minorities. In addition, students and their families, for example, are expected to offer to volunteer in local fundraising, in developmental work, in disaster relief. This majoritarianism is a prescriptive formula that functions through combining heightened capital, hypermilitarism, and primordial nationalism to consolidate imagined communities into the soul of the right nation. Its tactics include social and economic ostracization, forcible religious conversions, theft, torture, threat, sexualized and gendered violence, and eventually murder. Two laws I wanted to name in relation to Orissa that act against minorities are the Orissa Prevention of Cow Slaughter Act of 1960 and the Orissa Freedom of Religion Act. In 2007, mass targeting of Muslims 
as in Bhadrakin, that of 1991, and the failure of justice in the aftermath consolidated the assault on Christians in Kandamal in 2007 and 2008. I'm, going, I'm reading from fragments and going back and forth. This is not a linear narrative. In Jagat Singhpur, in Orissa, Jesus is the son of a subaltern god. Provoked by the Sangparivar, on 10th February 2004, seven Christian women and a male pastor were tonsured, their heads shaved in a ritualized act by upper caste and Hindu-identified Dalit neighbors against their will, signifying their return to Hinduism. Staged in Bauri Sahi, a Dalit hamlet in Kilipal village adjacent to Kanimul, this event took place in Jagatsingpur district of Orissa. As I narrate this episode from recent history, even today, a long-standing social and economic boycott remains in place against this women, the pastor, and their families. And a quote. The women, this is a composite narrative, the women tell me, the crowd formed to surround us, people we have known all our lives moved toward us, shouted and threatened. They held us down, the women held us down, as we tried to get away. Our clothes were torn, they beat our bodies and dragged us. Some of them were family. We had called each other pony, sister, before. They wanted their hate to stay on our bodies so we could not forget. They said we were their own, their kin, their inside. That we were Hindus who had brought misfortune by becoming Christian, we, sister, she turns to me, were never any day their own. Post-2008, uh, a colleague and I were supposed to go to collect, to, to understand what had happened. And for seven days we tried to go and we couldn't, and we kept getting these missives that if we went, uh, our bodies would be charged so, so much that no one could even find evidence that it was actually us, so we didn't go. But something amazing happened. Some of these men and women got on a truck and came to us to testify. Post-2008. On September 30th, I had received a note from Ajay Kumar Singh, a human rights activist of Christian heritage, entitled, As I Saw That Day in Kandamhal. He mourned what is, and a quote from him. It has been a painful day for us all, not only because of the type of incidences of killing women are new, not because the children are attacked or old and infirm are axed, not because more than 100 houses were burned in a single attempt, not because sleepy villages were attacked when least expected at 4 a.m., not because the trees were felled from all directions during the daytime, not because villagers begged for security before police officials, not because police party could not stop the attackers numbering out around 6,000 that came from nowhere, as I heard, not because in every attack to a great extent people know the attackers and tell that to the police administration, yet the police and administration are not convinced of the identity of the attackers, nor because force is deployed in villages which are prone to, not deployed, I apologize, in villages that are prone to attack. It has been a painful day for us all because this is the place where the Christian and Hindu tribal and Dalit live together once in harmony. It is in this area now that relatives are at each other, brother against brother, son against mother, daughter is against father. 
Until a couple of days back, one of my associates, a tribal, used to call his immediate cousin, his own father's brother's son, an ideal leader. Now they have burned each other's houses down. What is more in store for them? For what and for how long? And now the administration calls for peace meetings. Another composite of interviews that I conducted in the first days from the women that had come in the truck to meet us and they hid in the basement of the Orissa Archbishop's house where we were able to sit and talk to them. In the first days of the violence, about 60 people surrounded the body, about 80 people surrounded the body, 500 people surrounded the body. His body was aflame. Hindutva workers asked that I become Hindu. They took a long time to die. Some Hindus aided our escape. He was marked from before. My son was marked from before. My son tells me that it is not over. Can I go back home? They say they must kill us, so we cannot tell what they have done. They kill Christians, buried them, then place stones over the bodies to stop resurrection. At night, I can still hear, become Hindu, become Hindu, become Hindu. They beat him with a crowbar, another hacked him. People were afraid to give us shelter, but still did. They asked him to become Hindu. They hit me. My husband was axed, torched. I saw him buried. They desecrated his body. After this, what life is possible? I have seen his killers. The police ask, why am I agitated? He was decapitated. They torched her. They are our neighbors. Blood everywhere. The police do not arrest the people. Bits of bone. They threaten rape. It is hard to get the medical report. We cannot live at home. They killed his mother. We have lost our identity, our ration cards, identification papers, our bodies, ourselves. Who are we now? This is as I heard the women in the room talk one, after, one upon the other. So I couldn't really distinguish between the different stories. And this is the composite that emerged. And then over days we slowed down and we stopped and we went one by one by one and we collected the testimonials. Another woman, a survivor of rape, speech, a daunting testimony to things that break, to fortitude. She sat for hours next to me, and we talked, and then we didn't. I kept working through it. At some point, she would just touch my hand. At some point, she would be quiet. And then she started to speak. She said, I want to sit with you and cry. I wanted to die. I promised I would live but I wanted to die. I thought I would go mad. Life brings a lot. This was my test. I wanted to remain myself. I wanted to make a life, a new life. I still feel so many nights the scenes repeat and repeat in my dreams. The deployment of violence on women, sexualized violence, hinges on the abuse of gendered power and the denigration of women as sexual beings. Gendered and social violence against women calls into focus the relation between social violence and gendered violence and endangers the scope of women's rights in conflict areas even further than the already endangered and vulnerable conditions of women's rights elsewhere across India, at home, in society, in the workplace, in prisons, in schools. Sexualized violence against women in Gujarat and Christian women in Orissa 
turned them as embodied signs into literal and figurative battlefields. Rape is often a mechanism of this violence, as is parading the women of the other naked. We note the use of rape in Kashmir, in cases in Gujarat, during the partition riots, where there took place sexual mutilation of women, the severing of breasts, the tearing open of vaginas and wombs, and distinctively, tragically in Gujarat, the forced abortion, as Nesreen talked to, to, to some of this, abortion of fetuses and their displays on Trichul's Skalpana, you also mentioned. Embodied violence is perpetrated during war and conflict situations, <coughs> chronic or otherwise, where women's displacement, literal and psychological, and the trauma of losing one's home, male family head and security are augmented by the added responsibility of child-rearing and caring for the aged and infirm, often without any support. I'll end with two things. Violence as a category of analysis presence is the way in which violence drives decision and response and constitutes lives, community, place, politics, and gender. As some of us had written earlier, the study of gendered violence should operate not as a shorthand for the understanding of violence on and against women, but also as an analytical category that is equally attentive to the ways in which normative ideas of masculinity and heterosexuality are disseminated amid a, per a pervasive context of militant nationalism. I'll end with one thing, marginalia, rage, fear, and discontinuity, the recurring fractured renditions in nation space, the violence of apathy, desperation in children's eyes, the hardened laughter of survival. The night is a prolonged journey of contemplation as we reimagine the stories of our becoming. I recall Lutfuera Khatun after Gujarat in Park Street, Calcutta, Kolkata, surrounded by Hindu extremists taunting, go back to Bangladesh. Luthuma, almost 80 years, old, family friend, my mother's midwife. She helped grow me, a Muslim woman whose family emigrated to Kolkata in 1923. I'm reminded of these worlds and, as what, and to what I have learned from my father, my grandmothers, mothers, aunts, an extended circle of women that grew me, that the work of justice is incomplete, fraught, and uneasy. We attempt it nonetheless in literal and figurative capacity. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for that, Angana, and I'd like to ask Mina now to address her. Um, uh, thanks to Kal Dr. Kalpana for having me here, Amrit for uh, being a friend, and uh, Nishrin, whose testimony was um, is something that left me speechless and broke uh, my belief in the idea of India for the second time. The first was 2002, Gujarat. And uh, thanks also to Professor um, Angana Chatterjee, um, you should have been a poet. You'd have put a lot of us out of business. <laughs> that is so beautiful, even if as it was academic. 
Uh, today, uh, given that uh, the other speakers have spoken about what Gujarat does and uh, the implications of getting justice, as well as the other um, violence that, visit, that is visited upon by the RSS on India's minorities, especially in Gujarat and uh, UP and Orissa, I want to talk to what does what does this Hindutva actually do when it's not attacking a minority? I mean, in the sense of uh, you know this this idea of Hindutva cannot exist, uh, you know, in, in some kind of pure. Uh, concentrated form without it permeating into broader society and how does it affect and so uh, in the in uh, one of the things that we wanted to discuss and which Dr. Kalpana was talking about was this idea of the love jihad or this uh, this whole Hindutva dream or what you call the scare about Muslim men actually going out being recruited to fall in love with Hindu girls lure them into their religion force forcibly convert them and make them into, you know, vessels to produce more Muslim children, and therefore hype the Muslim population. Or this is not a, this is a kind of uh, what the whole love jihad scare is about, and something that uh, is not only taking place in, let's say, the UK or uh, other places where Hindu nationalism is strong, but also, you know, even in progressive places like Kerala, where I work a lot. So you have these posters on bus stands that say, be careful of love jihad, girls, be careful. But the fact is that, you know, for a long time, I think since we started hearing about it, let's say 2007, 8, 6, it was just love jihad, Muslim men, Hindu women, and, you know, the formula never changed. But surprisingly, uh, in 2012, when you had uh, this incident in Dharmapuri, where one girl of the caste Hindu community of one years, which is an OBC community, uh, married a man from the Dalit community called Ilavarasan. She was 20, he was 22. Uh, and she married Ilavarasan, and uh, this happened in Dharmapuri. And a couple of days after the marriage, you know, uh, violence broke out. Her father was tortured, so he committed suicide. And the Patali Makalkachi, or which is one of those feudal um, uh, caste East com uh, communities, they basically launched an attack on every single um, Dalit man who had married an upper caste or a one-year girl. So they, they chose three Dalit colonies to attack. And in November 2012, on uh, November 7, I'm sh if I'm not very bad with the dates, 268 homes of Dalit people were burnt in one single day. So this is Annanagar, Kondampati, and Natham colony. And these were actually, once upon a time, Naxalite places. You know, these are the kinds of places you would never imagine caste Hindu violence visiting. And these are also places that being once ex-Naxalite areas, these are manned 24 hours by police personnel. You actually have a check post to enter that. This is Dharmapuri, this is Tamil Nadu, this is not Kashmir, this is not a border area, but these places actually actually have a 24-hour police check post. And still, these uh, mobs of one-years uh, could come and they could torch the homes. Every single home was torched. Thankfully, there were no casualties because people could run away. They were pleading for help, but there, no help was forthcoming. But why I'm talking about this incident, so what purely looks from the outside, like a caste attack, and caste attacks are extremely routine as far as culture is, uh, you know, at, as far as at least Tamil Nadu is concerned, by the oppressor caste on the Dalit people, is that the way it was being framed by uh, Ramadas, who runs 
the Patali Makkal Karchi and others, he was clearly framing it in the language of Love Jihad. He was saying, these Dalit men are being tutored by the leader of the Dalit party into wearing jeans, into wearing sunglasses, into going around on motorbikes, into, you know, appearing fashionable, and therefore luring women of the caste Hindu, the one-year community, and they are also, you know, targeting only the most educated women. They're targeting women who are wealthy, and they are doing all this. So, the the idea is that, you know, at some point of time, we just look at it through this whole prism of religion and think, yeah, it's uh, Hindu versus Muslim versus Christian. And some, I think Hindutva is far more pernicious than that. This, the the rise of the Hindu right wing, in some way, lets it permeate your language, it permeates discourse, and it modifies everything so that even within Hinduism or even within so-called Hinduism, it becomes very easy for any, anybody to, you know, start this kind of a love jihad campaign. It, it, he never used the word love jihad. But what he was talking about, about these Dalit men, about casting them, just as Muslim men were, you know, cast into the role of the other, the demon, the, you know, they were completely being demonized and said that they're doing this. The same, the same argument kept repeating, and I, I think it's, uh, it's all, it's, it's very important that you know we take stock of it and also see the the many ways in which this, uh, what once the problem with uh, I think. The RSS kind of uh, discourse is also that when they keep repeating it in you know in all kinds of media here there it becomes a part of everybody's discourse because yesterday the Kerala High Court actually has given a ruling that. A marriage is not something about just the two people who can be majors, they can be adults, but the parents have to play, they have a right or a say in the marriage of their children. And this is the High Court. And this is in a country that has a constitution that respects people's choice. I mean, you have your right to life, you have your right to making decisions, you have your right to religion, but this is a High Court that says, well, parents have a say. And it, the High Court also says that childish or immature activities you know, talking about love in the in the larger context, and I am really I'm really most uh, annoyed because this is some news that you know came very late last night. But the fact is that Kerala is possibly the has consistently shown itself as progressive. It was the first state in India to elect democratically elected communist government, and when you have this kind of a history and this kind of a, the court is again you know. It's just becoming so normal for the court to speak, you know, do this exact Hindutva speak, this speak of, you know, protectionist discourse, this, uh, this speak of, uh, you know, parents having a say. And, uh, and this is not the first time. I think, again, when we look at what have, uh, this Love Jihad scare, in 2009 there, was, uh, there were two cases that came up before the Kerala High Court where there were girls who were Hindus. One girl was Hindu, one girl was Christian. They had married Muslim men. Separate, separately, but in both the cases, they said they sent the girl back to the parent. The girl said, "No, it was my own choice. I decided to marry him." The court said, "No, go back to your parent," and uh, against her wishes, saying that you stay there for six months and let's see if you change your mind. And in 2012, Dharmapuri, the same thing happened. This girl Divya had married Ilavarasan. And she was asked to be produced in court by her parents, so she was produced in court. And the judge, without asking her, without consulting her, said, now go live with your parents. If your love for your husband is all, the, all, the, all that strong, you will still get back to him. So the court ordered her to go and live with her parents. But unfortunately, what happened was that Ilavarasan, being a very young person and also under extreme, extreme stress, 
one really even doesn't know what's the end of the story but one the official version is that he committed suicide by falling on the railway tracks but dalit groups as well as silverson's father believe that he was murdered and uh, they uh, repeatedly sought two three postmortems nothing came out of it but what i'm trying to say it's not about eleverson's death or it's not about divya's uh, you know being uh, the, what decision she took but the fact is that this is how the court was functioning the court decides to imbibe this hindutva the court decides to say okay this is a hindu girl this is a caste hindu girl and the, the functional word is not hindu the functional word is also caste so okay go back to your parent and uh, so far they were only doing it in practice so every single case they would just say okay send them back to the parent but now they said okay parents have a say in marriage i don't know what this holds out for uh, all of the hindu girls but it's not uh, the most nice thing to know and again i think uh, the court also used the word indian culture about when when it wanted to frame this talk about what parents uh, what rights parents have and what rights parents don't have don't have and i think this indian culture is again something that's most vexing because one is that while we don't have any homogeneity of indian culture hindutva has made it as the the shorthand by you know by invoking the word indian culture to basically invoke everything that can run against any feminist interest so hindu uh, indian culture culture becomes the word that tells you how to dress indian culture becomes the word that tells you when you should be back home indian culture is the word that tells you who you should date when you should date when you should have children whether you should have children at all so and i think the it's the, the whole idea of indian culture is that um, the the dangerous implication is also because um, just as i was telling you about the kerala high court order of today last week there was the circular from one of the most popular universities in tamil nadu which is the velur institute of technology so they sent out a whole circular saying that there have been instances reported on the campus la 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 la, la. Uh, we want all our students to avoid any kind of physical contact except handshakes and this so that No, seriously i'm not joking this was a circular dated 26 february and they said this is because we want to protect indian culture and we don't want to give a bad name to indian culture so i think that you know this whole just because it, even though indian culture might have been a brainchild of hindutva it 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 really appeals to the conservative elements all across society it it appeals to feudal elements all across society it appeals to the moral police everywhere and even if they might not patently identify themselves with hindutva this is the kind of effect that it has in society so yeah if uh, yeah, thankfully london school of economics is situated in london but i think if you were in tamil nadu you would at possibly at some stage be asked to refrain from all physical contact except handshakes and um, i also think that the pro- the problem is that I, instead of you know being on the fringe or being seen as something that's you know extreme it has now seeped so much and i'm talking about what you have been seeing like in the last 10 or 20 years it has now become the new normal so you know an institution can actually an educational institution can actually put put out this kind of circular they can actually you know or a court can actually say parents have a say and uh, or a caste hindu party can openly say no this is what the men are doing so i think it's just something that's becoming also all pervasive and even as we talk about talk about this i i also want to you know bring in something about uh, two states in of india which are not on the national radar as much as they should be because india has a tendency of you know most of the time it stops at india stops at delhi 
sometimes it goes a little further down maybe maharashtra maybe mumbai but just kerala and tamil nadu totally forgotten because the last two months i was spending in kerala and towards the end of january the beginning of february there were two massive meetings uh, there were flags like every three not even three foot distance but you had these flags of the bjp or its allies that was just crowding all of tiruvananthapuram all these so called marxist bastions and the bjp is striking two major alliances one is with the pulayar mahajana sabha which is this dalit party um, and the other is with uh, sndp yogam which is shri narayana guru dharma paripalana yogam and so both of uh, i'm sorry you know bjp's electoral politics might not be my business but as a feminist i'm really worried because if you look very closely at the history of the player mahajana sabha which is this untouchable party which was started by shri ayankali he was somebody who was fighting for the rights of pulayar women pulayar women were asked to bear their breast every time they came across somebody of the higher caste they were women who were forced to wear earrings made of stone so that you looked at these women and you knew what caste they belonged to they were made to you know wear stone they were made to you know show themselves naked and ayengali was working among these women telling you throw away these stone earrings now you throw away these symbols of your oppression in a public meeting and you never going to you know undress yourself because that's what custom demands and the same way you have shri narayana guru who is not a leader of the dalits but well a leader of the irava community which is a very backward community and he was not only fighting for rights but he was also fighting for reform within hinduism he was fighting for the rights of you know women of the tiya community women of the irava community so what exactly happens to all these struggles when you know there there is this extreme posturing and these leaders are so happy with modi's presence and i think it's 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 it, so even though it's you know could be electorally um, electorally strategic for the parties concerned or whatever it is i think from the position of women from the position of empowerment from the position of what these organizations stood for what these leaders stood for i think it's undermining this decades of hard work that has been put forward or, or when i come come back to tamil nadu which is a state where we believe that the bjp cannot ever take a foothold not only because of tamil nadu's own history of anti brahmin movements or the dravidian movement or the self respect movement but uh, initially you know it sta- it started out with uh, the pravin togadia who is going to come the vhp's uh, president who is going to come and not just come and speak but he wanted to distribute trishuls in madurai these are the trishuls we are talking about trishul being something not really known to tamil hinduism or bhakti hinduism or whatever exists down south so he wanted to distribute trishuls and at the time there was this huge outrage there were all ngos who went to court trying to prevent his coming and so much of this was happening but again as somebody from the lower community caste as somebody who is a woman what has to be looked very keenly here is that togadia is not coming to some brahman meeting togadia was not coming to some dalit meeting togadia was coming and aligning with the dever community the dever community just like the ideal hindutva is a caste hindu community which relies and takes its pride from its hypermasculinization which takes its pride from the the kind of riots that it can call at seconds notice and whose masculinization doesn't stop only you know in terms of talk but also is represented extremely on indian tamil cinema and so he was distributing trishuls to some community which was already you know just trigger hungry and you know just you know just willing to wait for the first chance of anti dalit violence and this was i don't think it was accidental 
it is very 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 pre-planned and cleverly cleverly handled and in, in the same manner I, last year when not last year but early this last year I think in December when uh, Modi was there in Tiruchi uh, which again is the place where Periyar based himself and did most of his work from Modi decided not decided very surprising for everybody to talk about the behe- the beheaded or heads of Indian soldiers apparently by the Pakistani army and saying we should demand these heads back. One, it is it sounds from the outside that why would anybody talk about you know the Indian army coming to Tamil Nadu because Tamil Nadu until the late 60s and um, for the early part of 70s was strongly seeking to secede from India. You had the secessionist movement where everybody, you know, my mother, my father, anybody, everybody had this whole anti-Hindi, anti-Indian sentiment. And up to the 1980s, 1990s, you had strong militant groups which were actually working for this. So why would somebody go and invoke the Indian army there? Or was this part of the whole grand, you know, national unification project? I just don't want to comment about it, but the reason I'm trying to, you know, put this in perspective is because not and a week after Modi, there's another BJP leader who visits Tamil Nadu and says, just as it's music to Tamil ears, we will get you Tamil Elam. You guys deserve Tamil Elam. And, you know, which is the separate state that Tamils in Sri Lanka are fighting for. And it was not Modi, it was, uh, I think, uh, one of the Sinhas works in the BJP. And I think this kind of an argument is very nice for them to to come and say this because uh, Sri Lanka, which uh, as you all know, maybe 100,000 people lost their lives in the genocide in 2009, they are trying consistently to appropriate it as a Hindu project, Hindu right project. They're trying to say, but all the Tamils there were, they're they're Hindus. Well, the Tamils never identified themselves strictly as Hindus. The, the movements that were fighting on the ground never wanted to, you know, affiliate themselves on any, any kind of religious basis. They were Tamil Hindus, but they were Tamil Christians as well. In fact, the, the primary time when we all know that situation is going worse was when the Madhu church was occupied by the army, by the Sri Lankan army. So they were Tamil Christians, they were Tamil Hindus, but they want to show this as a kind of, this happened to Tamil Hindus, and the state, the center is not bothered about you because it's a Hindu problem, you know, the Congress, and it's Hindu girls who got raped, and see now Nothing happened because it was Hindu girls. And the whole idea in which one struggle of one people is, you know, very conveniently hijacked. And the whole language of the struggle is, you know, modified to suit Hindutva agendas. And when issues of justice to Tamil women suddenly gets boxed into this Hindu women box because it's very comfortable for the BJP. I think all, all these are issues that today they are, you know, just slightly rearing their head. And, you know, sometimes with trouble is that when it's in its initial stage, you really can't see it. But when it becomes much more, we cannot even spot it. And it's also not about, you know, only these kind of, uh, you know, Tamil Nadu or Kerala things. But also, for, for instance, when Section 377 came, I mean, we're all talking about women. But I think the major talk on gender should also involve talk on homosexuality and how does the BJP look at it. And the, the whole idea was... This quote unquote Western culture is being brought into our society and culture, and saying that we are to, we are behind the Supreme Court line and it's an unnatural act. And this is what the BJP was saying. So at no point of time was it even willing to reach out to you know anything that disturbs its safe binary of the masculine, hypermasculine male and the subservient wife-bearing Sita type of Indian woman. 
And the problem is that when you raise these questions, whether it's, you know, in a kind of academic discussion, yeah, 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 I'm done. Yeah, I won't take even five minutes. Yeah. Is that, you know, the problem is whether you talk about religion or clothing or public space or sexual freedom, and the, the immediate label in which people are going to shut you down is by saying, oh, you are a, she's a Western feminist, and that's exactly why she's talking. I don't know how I became Western, Western feminist, but that's, that's not only me, but anybody who raises these issues is immediately given the glorious stamp of Western feminism. And um, uh, <coughs> since I've been given this five-minute note, I just finished about Modi, who is... Um, and his opinion on women. He was the person who actually went on record saying, uh, Dr. Kalpana was citing the statistics about 44% or one in every third child in Gujarat being malnourished. And Modi's solution to that, uh, not explanation to that was, women are not eating because they are beauty conscious. His exact word was figure conscious. So this, this is the man who is going to lead India. I mean, God forbid he gets elected. When you have 6.13 lakh children who are malnourished, in Gujarat and 85,000 of him, them in the capital Ahmedabad alone. And also he is the same person in a country rankled with dowry deaths and uh, female infanticide when Gujarat has a sex ratio of 917 as opposed to the national average of, very proud national average of 940. He was the man who said, on the occasion of your daughter's birth, you have to plant five trees, because then when your daughter is old enough to be married, you can use these trees and, you know, get her off married. And so this is his, uh, you know, plan, his cottage industry plan for women. So this is the second thing. And third is that never, never, never forget, I'm not talking anything personal, but never forget that when he fancied a woman, he had her stopped. He had her phone conversations recorded, and all her movements were, you know, like kind of, under, under surveillance, so this is not somebody who should be in charge of a whole nation of women. And again, um, this was again was pointed out by Dr. Kalpana Wilson, who spoke about the fact that his uh, women and children's welfare secretary was Maya Kodnani, who personally oversaw the riots. And even though Indian judicial system is something I have no hopes in, which has never convicted, managed to convict this woman for 28 years for the gruesome death of 94, the gruesome killings of 94 people in Gujarat in 2002. And finally, at the risk of sounding very partisan, I just want to say that Modi, when he was speaking in 2012, April, at the Brahmin Samelan said, Brahmins, because you know, the problem is Indian culture, Brahmins are the custodians of Indian culture and Shastras, and he praised them for this culture. So in case anyone has assumed that Indian culture was some nice fancy hybrid, it's nothing but Hindutva. And Hindutva in turn is nothing but Brahminism. And Brahminism is nothing but a hatred of the outsider and the subordination of the lower caste and the practice of untouchability and the enslavement of women. And all of this is not uh, Meena Kandasamy saying, it's Dr. Ambedkar. So thank you very much. much, Meena. Um, I think we've had some amazingly uh, rich talks, and I, um, uh, we have a little bit of time for questions from the audience. Um, so, uh, and there is a roving mic as well. Um, so, uh, uh, any questions to the speakers, um, please put your hand up.
Dr. Kalpana Wilson, um, thank you very much for arranging this fantastic you know, event tonight. My name is Devinder Prasad and I'm General Secretary of an organization called Castwatch UK. Um, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time in discussing what we have done in this country on caste. Caste is a serious problem and we have done a lot of work and campaigning in the last 10 years and we have got legislation against caste in, in the statute book in this country, which is still being uh, going through implementation stage. And there are, I don't want to actually say that, but there are forces uh, which are opposing, you know, us getting caste equality even in this country. But it is so heartbreaking to hear the, the stories of Nishreen, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and uh, Ms. Shakiji and uh, Meena. It, is, it makes me feel ashamed to be an Indian, to be honest, right? And sometimes during our campaigning, we say that we are in civilized world, you know, uh, in this country, Great Britain, people get upset. But after listening to the stories of what we have just heard today, it makes my, uh, you know, feeling that we are living in civilized world in Great Britain much stronger. I just want to uh, give example of one um, incident, class-related Dalit atrocity. And if you just, I mean, most of the probably uh, uh, delegates here, all you have to do is Google Dalit atrocities in India, and it comes on there what is happening there. Dalit women are raped every day. Dalits are murdered every day. But they are not able to get justice, same as Nisreen, you know, and your relatives are trying to get justice for the last 12 years. I don't think they will ever get justice in India. But the question I want to ask is this Karlenji massacre in India, where young women, their only crime was that they got themselves educated and they were asserting for equality. And they were raped openly and in front of in front of high caste women. What I can't comprehend is how can these high caste women stand there, witness their men raping women? You know, are they not women who are being raped just because they're low caste, doesn't make them women? And how do these women accept those men after having raped these women back into their households as normal people? I think women in India need to do probably more, you know, and it doesn't matter whether they are high caste, low caste, it's the women in higher caste categories which need to be educated. If they want women equality, gender equality, it has to start from women in the higher caste level. So I just want to yeah. ask the panel, what can the women in higher caste do to probably help women who are no so, so unfortunate as them uh, to, to bring some kind of sense to the Indian you know, society? Okay. I'm going to take uh, two more questions and then I'm going to uh, pass it to the panel. Um, yes. Great discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, there is violence against the women all over the world. We know that, which is shameful, outrageous also. But now, given in the Indian context, I wonder, is there a difference between the nature of violence or the objective of violence when it is inflicted on the majority community 
and the minority community? And if there is, is there a deeper motive of targeting the minority community women? I'll take uh, one more question. Um, um, I'm speaking from, um, uh, as a Sikh activist, from a number of organizations. Yes, Devinder, I'm here. Yeah. recognize you from the back. Uh, Kiesri Lair, 1984 Genocide Coalition, and various other groups. <clears throat> the harrowing case studies that you've presented are... There isn't you know, words to express our horror, but tragically, uh, we've become unfortunately conditioned to this. Um, the Sikh community, as you well know, was subject, has been and was subject to systematic rape, torture, uh, both inside Punjab and in New Delhi in 1984. Our women were a frontline victim of that process. Um, the horror stories that are, ha are happening against the Dalits, um, which is probably one of the world's most concealed, uh, concealed forms of apartheid. We talk about apartheid in South Africa, but India is hiding its own apartheid, which has been carried on for, se for centuries. And it's a massive shame on Indian civilization. India, equally as a state, conceals its own hidden genocide, 84, 2002 and onwards. The impact on women folk um, we see throughout history and not least in South Asian history that whenever you attack a community or want to attack a community, the means that are often used is to attack the women folk, the, the womanhood of that community. And rather perver perversely, um, in India, we have this phobia about ijat, honor, um, and we place this disproportionate level of honor responsibility on the woman. You can't go out. You must cover your head. You mustn't show your face. You mustn't board the same bus as a man. This, that, and the other. You mustn't be seeking, uh, seen speaking to the milkman and so forth. Uh, we, we suffer from this mental disease en masse. And um, if our woman is violated, if my wife is violated, then I will re outright reject my wife. It's not her fault. Somebody from outside has done something to her, but in my own eyes, she has become, become spoiled goods. There is something deeply and seriously and historically sick about the Indian mentality. And whereas Hinduvata or Hindu so-called nationalism would say, you're undermining Indian culture, well, yes, I am. Because as Guru Nanak said, any culture that is built on subhuman values and practices is not actually a culture at all. And in, in the eyes of Indianism or Indianization, we must reject these practices we can't be party to these practices and we can't be party to this system of apartheid and oppression that we call Indian culture. We must speak up against it and, and, and renew and refresh our humanity. Okay, I'm going to ask the panel to uh, respond to, to those uh, points and questions. Uh, should we yeah. 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 
Okay. Thank you. Um, can you can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to remember the questions and respond briefly. So, and Kalpana will tell me if I'm taking too much time. Um, what can higher caste women do? That's a very large question. I just want to speak to a fragment of it. I've witnessed, I interviewed, they have this uh, in Orissa, for example, there's an RSS women's wing, Rashtriya Sevika Samiti, and I interviewed the uh, person who officiates in relation to that organization. And uh, there's a charter code of conduct for women that they have created. And that charter includes for subservience at every level, uh, at every level and for every age group. The process of indoctrination is quite intense in the formation of the Hindu nationalist family. Uh, in, in creating them as an entity, as an identity. I think part of it is also, so that's one thing I wanted to name. The other is if you look at the textbooks and the rewriting of, of textbooks and the infiltration of the Hindu right, for example, into the academic committees where textbooks are being rewritten and systematically reorienting history through which young children become aware of the condition of women and how they might respond. And I think that uh, education, massification of education, forms of alliance building. In the United States, there are various things. I live there. The various things that one is critical of. But it seems quite doable at any level of society to actually talk about race today. There are differences of opinions. There's tremendous amounts of racialization and racism, seen, unseen, etc., racism without race, all of that, yes. But a conversation can actually be had. One can name race. In India, however, reciprocally, one cannot really name gender or even caste, let alone the process of minoritization. And I think that that needs to be socially at every stage of society a priority through which to demystify these issues and render them no longer taboo in terms of conversation and discussion. Just wanted to mark that. I'll move on to another question. Uh, difference in, in, in relation to violence as perpetrated upon majority versus minority groups. Just one quick point. Again, it's a you know, complex question that you're asking. One quick point is systematically, if you re re look at the record of convictions or the discourses around the perpetration of violence on majority community versus minority community, the discourse, if, for example, a minority man, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, perpetrates violence on a Hindu woman, woman that man is understood to be emblematic of the culture. So it is no longer that a man who happens to be, let's say, Muslim, Sikh, or Christian has perpetrated violence on a Hindu woman. It becomes that Muslims are therefore violent, Sikhs are therefore violent, Christians are therefore violent. becomes a way of both criminalizing and sexualizing males of that culture. Whereas reciprocally, if, for example, someone from the majority community, a Hindu man, perpetrates violence on 
women of the minority community, it is the opposite that happens. It is seen as an aberration and never quite symptomatic of the culture. So I just wanted to name that in relation to the very important point and question that you were raising. In relation to 1984, I just simply wanted to acknowledge that and say that it was a very important rite of passage for me. I, was, I went to, started to go to university that year, just moved from Kolkata to Delhi, and I had the privilege of working in the relief camps, bearing witness to one woman who sat for seven days with a severed thumb that she held in the midst of a palm that she said was all that remained of her family of 13. So I simply wanted to acknowledge that memory. Thank you. Um, I'll just take the question about what were higher caste women doing in Karlanji when Sureka and Priyanka Bochmange were raped? Uh, and generally, how do, we, how do we look at the upper caste women as it is? And I think even as we call them out for, uh, you know, the kind of complicity in violence, because even in Dharmapuri, when 300 Dalit homes were burnt in a course of a couple of hours, uh, the police actually had to make arrest of a couple of women because these women also went to you know to witness this kind of carnage to act, take active part in it and to do this kind of uh, thing the thing is that even as we call them out on it we should also call out the silence of activists the silence of um, upper caste uh, feminists for instance because when dharmapuri happened the upper caste feminists were extremely silent, whereas um, the same PMK, a couple of years ago, had put out this statement saying that, you know, Kushbu, an actress in South India, was making comments on chastity and premarital sex, and the PMK was threatening action against her. At the time, all these women are out on the streets and saying, oh, it's freedom of expression, uh, they are harassing Kushbu, which is good, yeah, yeah, fine. But when the same PMK was attacking Dalits, these women went silent. So we have to see what's this conspiracy. When it's one of your own who gets attacked by the PMK, you want to show solidarity. But when it's Dalit people's homes which is getting burnt, or when it's, you know, Dalit boy like Ilavarasan marrying another caste Hindu girl like Divya, why are you silent? Why are you silent about these 300 homes? It's the same PMK. Come to the road, come and shout. Come take, go to your television channels, shout. I think this kind of duplicity of upper caste feminists to only cherry pick certain issues and to be extremely silent on other issues, I think it's something that uh, we have to just call, it, call them out on it because uh, what's the reason it's not happening? And uh, the, uh, again, the... I think I should stop with that, but the nature of violence, and she made a point about majority and minority, but from a very layman or a very layperson, common person's perspective, I think you can easily make the difference because if it is a crime against the minority, it's never getting reported in the media. Nobody even talks about it. It doesn't get any, any kind of space. It just, it's so totally, you know, it's, it disappears. For instance, even Kailanji disappeared until the Dalit group started, you know, seeking justice. Whereas if it's a crime against the majority, then and there is so much of noise about it, and that's just one of the yardsticks of how it's how it plays out later. I just wanted to talk to, to Sergi there, and um, my heart goes out for 1984 again. I was very young when that happened, but I I know I understand fully what was happening then, and I understand now what is happening now. But I want to tell you two things. One is in in the USA, I have been called. Um, in Gurudwaras to talk about the tragedy that happened in 2002. Somehow somebody contacts me and I go and I speak to them. And there are, there's one thing I never forget to tell them is that in the entire 
Gulberg Society area outside, which is called the Meghanyanagar area, where Praveen Tugaria was actually leading the mob, like Godnani was leading in Narora Patia. There was only one Sikh family that we knew from very childhood, and we, we only know him as Billuji. His house was like all the way at the end of the community. He's the only one who kept 20 Muslims in his house, in his bedroom, under the bed, and he saved him. I always remember to say that, that there was no, no story, nothing. Nobody could go in. You can go into the entire area. Nobody will tell you that we were saved by this home. We were living there for 40... My dad had been there for 45 years. All his friends had vanished. No neighbors were... There are temples around our house. There are mosques around the house. Nobody came to help. But there was one person who had helped. And even today, when you go and meet these people who are living now in colonies, who were saved by this... Sadar family will tell you exactly they still visit them that there was something so honorable that was done in that on that February 28th and the second thing is that when I went to Gurudwaras I was I was I mean I am not a very articulate speaker they called me I told them the tragedy I also met there a, um, um, a young lady who had made a documentary the name of the documentary I don't remember the girl's name she's from a Sikh community, the name of the documentary is The Widow's Colony. When I saw the, col- the do- documentary, when I talked to her, I, I couldn't stop telling her that if you go to Ahmedabad, if you go to Juhapura, there are these colonies that have come up after all this fund was raised to make some housing for these displaced Muslims who are now running from every corner of Ahmedabad trying to find safety in a ghetto, which is now being called Muslim ghetto. Every home you go, I go there every year. I know these people by faces. There are people who were from 1969 who talked to my mother, ki, kya hai ye? what is happening? Ek bar hua kam nahi tha, and there are fresh people from 2002. Every home you will find a widow. Every home you will find an orphan. Every home you will find a child who has lost his father or his mother. So I did talk to her about that. And I'm so my heart goes out that this is happening in today's world where technology and globalization is being talked about. India shining is talked about in India. But look at the condition of the people, the young women in India and what they're suffering. Okay, well, um, I'd like to conclude by uh, giving a huge thank you to our um, panel speakers, Nishin Jaffi Hussain, um, Dr. Amina Chatterjee, and uh, Meena Kanisabi. And I hope that you will keep in touch with us and uh, get information about further events which will be taking place uh, on this theme. Thank you very much. <laughs>